spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Everything's back to normal for us this week. It's episode 216 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I feel like because, you know, we kind of took a week off from reviewing comics because of Tabwater Comic Con last week and our coverage there, even though we talked a lot of comics, didn't review a whole lot. So I'm going to give you a couple of full reviews of comics and then a couple of kind of honorable mentions, things that you might want to check out as well. Plus, I've got my spoiler-filled review of Solo, a Star Wars story coming up, a bunch of nerd news, going to talk about some casting news and give my opinions on that as well. And if that's not enough, we're going to be talking about the new YouTube Red series, Impulse, which follows the the Jumper story. We're going to talk to Sarah Desjardins, who's a big, big part of that, plays the main character's sister. We'll get into that show with her a little bit later on. But you know what's next. It's back. What we're reading on the Down and Nerdy podcast. This is writer Peter David, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out your long box, fire up the laptop or the tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and you know that I'm going to be starting with the Man of Steel number one from DC Comics and Brian Michael Bendis. Ivan Rice does the pencils, John Pardo does the inks, except for pages 21 and 22 which are done by the great Jason Fabok. And, of course, you have Alex Sinclair doing colors and Corey Pettit on the letters. Now, now I'm not saying you had to read Action Comics 1000 to get into this series. I recommend reading that anyway, but it would definitely help because this almost kind of seemed like a prequel to what happened in Action Comics 1000, and that's where Rogol Czar debuted. Now, we get to kind of find out why Rogol Czar feels the way he does and the way he does about Krypton and why he sort of got pushed over to the edge to the point that he is now. Now, these reviews are spoiler-free. I know the book's out, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't gotten a chance to read it yet. But I say pushed over the edge. It's not like he was a level-headed dude to begin with. I don't want to give you that impression. But at the same time, you kind of... He wasn't as radical and as bad as he was before he got pushed over the edge. And I'm not blaming those that kind of did, because I probably would have made the same decision that they did and told them the same thing. But you also didn't try to talk him down either kind of thing in this first issue. Once you see who's involved, you'll understand what I'm saying. Now, one thing we do get in the stories, we get to see a very human and everyday side of Superman the hero. Not necessarily Clark Kent, but actually Superman get inside the mind of the everyday being Superman part of Superman, which I think is a really interesting thing that Bendis is trying to do because, I mean, yeah, that's something that we've done, that we've seen done before, but I think that it it just seems like it's going to be a little bit more of an emphasis this time. We also kind of get introduced to a new female character who seems to have a little bit of a thing for the Man of Steel. And I'm not saying that this is going to be a problem. And I know the Boy Scout would never ever, ever cheat on Lois. Never. But at the same time, it almost, maybe I'm reading more, way too much into this, but it seemed like there was a little bit more of something there and there was a little bit more attention paid to those particular panels than you normally would if this was just kind of a throwaway encounter. So 
I'm wondering if this is going to be a problem a little bit later on in the book. Let me know what you think if you get to the same point in this book once you read it or if you've already read it. Let me know if I'm reading too much into this. Just tweet the show at DownAndNerdy757 and give me your impressions of that. Now, Bendis is really setting the tone here for the kind of Superman story and Superman that he wants to represent and take a little bit of a different tone because really this story was more this first issue was more of a tone setter and a laying the groundwork kind of thing than anything else there there really isn't a whole lot to get out of it other than seeing how Rogelzar got to where he did and setting the tone for the superman that Brian Michael Bendis wants to represent here which I think is really good the art is absolutely fantastic i got to be honest it doesn't matter who was doing the art i mean i understand why you get Jason Faybach or Jay Faybach as he's listed in the credits to do the last couple of pages here, those really, really pop. But I don't feel like there was a letdown with Ivan Reese and Joe Pardo at all. I mean, a couple of very accomplished artists in their own right. So you mean you want to talk about a superstar team in this first issue. That's exactly what you got. I got good vibes from this. It definitely felt different from Peter J. Tomasi's Superman run, which I like. You want something different when you get a change in creative team. And since this is going to be kind of a, a miniseries special leading to something else, I think that's that's exactly what we needed. You still get the family dynamic. You still get the things you, you've loved about the Superman books that we've had recently. But it definitely feels like a little bit of a different tone. This is definitely a pull for me. I can't wait to keep reading this week after week and watching this story evolve, which I'm sure it will do. I don't blame them for having this first issue being a tone setter, especially if you've read Action Comics 1000, which you probably have. So you're already getting a little bit of ahead of the game if you've read that. This is kind of a prequel to what happened there. And I'm guessing the next issue will pick up right where that is, or at least somewhere around there. Another book that I was really looking forward to reading that's actually coming out this coming week is Sword Daughter Number 1 from Dark Horse Comics, which, of course, is written by Brian Wood. That's one of the reasons I wanted to check this book out. Mark Chatter does the art. Jose Valerubia does the colors. And Nate Picas of Blambot on the letters. Love the cover, by the way, by Greg Smallwood. Really, really detailed and really awesome. It takes place in, 9, in 991 AD, and it's the story of a young girl, Elizabeth, who is abandoned by her father after a very tragic event that happens at their village. When I say abandoned, I mean abandoned for like a decade. And this guy just kind of is almost dead to the world. He's alive but dead to the world for like a decade. And that's the that's the crazy part about this whole story so far. And now, again, trying to be spoiler-free as much as I can here, she finds him years later and he's kind of, you know, something sort of clicks and he's sort of ready to get revenge for everything that happened and but their relationship it makes it an uncomfortable read between the father and the daughter and everything that happened there especially if you have abandonment issues anyway in your own life whether it be from a spouse or a parent or or a best friend anything like that this story is going to hit you and it's going to become a little bit personal for you it definitely was for me um dealing with that in my own life in, in a certain respect it makes you, it definitely gets your ire up a little bit and you wonder, you know, what this relationship's going to be like. I mean, I think of other, there's been other movies and other stories that have tackled this. I don't really want to call any out because I don't want you to compare the two because we're a society that likes to compare things so much. I don't want this to be compared. I want it to stand on its own and for you to give your opinion on it based on that. Now, it's a story of loss. 
It's a coming of age story for, for Elizabeth as well. And that uneasy relationship is such a theme throughout the middle part and latter part of this book. And it's this is another story where it's kind of just really getting started. And maybe slowly but surely that father-daughter bond might start to not necessarily get repaired, but at least come a little closer. Another thing that I really like, and maybe this is a tad bit of a spoiler, so I'm going to warn you about this a little bit. The girl does not really talk but she can communicate. And it's a brilliant way of how you're working between the letters and the artist and the writer. There's really a, tri- a trifecta of a relationship here that's brought in with this book in the means of communication that I think is really, really neat. And a lot of books don't do. And it just shows you the importance, by the way, of your letter. And a role that they can play in a book. And I love that Brian Wood decided to do that. And Mark Chatter's art, really, really good as well. I actually think it's a bit of a step up from Briggs Land, which I actually thought was excellent art. And I think one of the best stories that Brian Wood has done. I think this kicks it up a notch a little bit. But there's just something about this story that has me locked in. You find out what happens to what the tragic event was in the village. You know who's involved. You know who your principal players are. We don't get a ton of character development on the dad or even the daughter, really, even though you you get to, you get a peek inside her head a little bit. So you know a little bit more about who she is anyway. And I think we got to peel the onion on the dad a little bit, but I'm really, really excited to do that because I feel like I have enough to go on to get me into the story, even though it seems like it wasn't obvious. I feel like I'm I'm in already, and I don't know if it's the abandonment issue thing or what, but this is a pull for me. I love this story already. Brian Wood is on such a roll right now with the stuff that he's doing, and I hope he continues to do that. A couple of honorable mentions here, like I said earlier on in the show, I wanted to talk about one of them is Jupiter Jet Volume 1, the trade that just came out from Action Lab and Jason Inman. It's just a fun story, and I love the relationship. It's a it's a brother-sister relationship. Something happens to the dad. She inherits a jet pack, and they sort of try and save the town slash save the earth kind of thing. And it's it's like... I don't know, a very green crime-fighting duo type story and trying to take down crime. It's a very early age story. I mean, you're talking about a 16-year-old girl here, too, and the brother's even younger. So it's just a fun ride, man. I mean, if this is how I felt, and you know how much I loved Joyride. If you've listened to this show for a while, Joyride by Boom Studios, I really, really loved that. It was such a fun vibe and a cool vibe and exploration Well, this is a little bit different of a story, but I get the same vibe reading this. I loved what Jason Inman and the art crew did on this across the board. So I would recommend getting Jupiter Jet Volume 1 if you haven't already. It's just a fun book. If you're looking for something really, really fun that's going to kind of take you on an adventure for a good 120 plus pages, then you're definitely going to want to grab Jupiter Jet. And you get all the info that you need in this story to get invested too, by the way. The other I wanted to talk about was Judge Dredd Under Siege, number one from IDW, which is the brand new Judge Dredd book from Mark Russell and Max Dunbar. Anytime I see Max Dunbar's name on a book, I'm reading it and I'm enjoying it because of his art alone. Never mind what else is going on in there, even though, I mean, it's Judge Dredd, so I'm going to check it out anyway. I like that Mark Russell was brought in here. I think that he brings a different tone to the story. I like that this is a, maybe a little bit of a spoiler here, it's kind of a mutant assault on Mega City 1. That's kind of where this first issue 
starts off. So it really lays the groundwork, and it and it's different from the last couple of at least the last couple, if not the last few, Judge Dredd stories that IDW has gone on to tell. So I'm really excited about this one as well. I'll give you a more full review for issue two. How's that? I'll give you a more full review of Judge Dredd. Uh, uh, excuse me, Judge Dredd Under Siege number one. We'll do a review of issue two when that comes out. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, going to dive in to my spoiler-filled review of Solo, A Star Wars Story. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Fielding, Zordon from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to travel to a galaxy far, far away, but really didn't seem that far away, didn't it? My spoiler-filled review of Solo, A Star Wars Story. Again, from here on out, full of spoilers, so if you haven't seen Solo yet... You might want to fast forward a little bit. I'm not going to dive into, again, all of the plot details. You've already seen the movie, or if you don't want to see it yet, I don't think that I'm going to convince you really because, not just because of the of the bad reviews that the, the, the movie has gotten from other folks, and I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit here, and you know, the quote-unquote poor box office performance of under $100 million. So, I mean, you've kind of got your mind made up at this point, but it's just interesting how things start out where you've got Han and Kira who are kind of together and they're trying to find a way out of this. Basically, it's a home for kids that are forced to steal for this overlord woman that's kind of their caretaker. And that's how they stay in her good graces and get fed and, and you know and everything like that. So they kind of break out of there. And that that's kind of an, a push-away part of the story other than that. This entire movie kind of lays the groundwork for you understanding how the Han Solo that you met in A New Hope becomes that Han Solo. And and that's exactly what the whole point of this movie was. So before I even get into anything that I liked or didn't like about this movie, to me that ultimately was the point. The Han Solo that you meet in A New Hope all of those years ago, how did he become that Han Solo? And that's exactly what this movie does. So if this movie accomplishes nothing else, it accomplishes that. Now I want to dive into the characters specifically. First of all, Alden Ironreich, who was the big question mark heading into this, and there was a lot of rumors that his acting was a problem and all of this different stuff. Well, to me, honestly, I mean, if I'm really just giving my honest opinion, not only was he a pleasant surprise, he was probably one of the best parts about this movie. I actually liked his portrayal of Han. And we get to find out how he becomes Han Solo, so there's a lot of other little details there as well. But, I mean, he showed a lot of range to me. I mean, there were times where he was charming and funny. There were times where he was serious when he needed to be serious. There was times when he played that kind of bastard role, I guess you could say, is the best, that SOB role that Han Solo is kind of known for, at least early on in the movies anyway. He gives us that role pretty darn well. So I I really didn't have a problem with him at all. And I know that some fans still did. Maybe that was a preconceived notion of all the rumors that were out there, but I actually thought he was great. And I actually thought Donald Glover's Lando was really good as well. Charming and had a really, really good chemistry with Han. But but you also get to see the, the dirty cheat that Lando is at the same time too. And I'm not just talking about cards. I'm talking about in general, but you also get to see how much of a heart he has. And we see that displayed, you know, later on in the original trilogy anyway. But his relationship with L3, who's his sassy droid, who I loved, by the way, the whole I'm going to go ahead 
and be the voice of all the droids that are kind of had there that are kind of under the thumb of humans and that whole droid fight club thing how she goes in there and tries to take out the guy that was organizing the fights and the whole social justice warrior vibe. And then when she frees the droids when they're going to steal the hyperfuel, to me, that was just the whole time. And then, of course, again, spoiler-filled, when she dies that moment and you get to see Lando flip that switch and be super, super concerned about L3, and then finding out L3 is a part of the Falcon. So then you also get that aspect of... That's one more reason why the Falcon is such a great ship because you have this wonderful navigation system, which was L3, and that and, and we find that out. So there's these little tidbits that we get to find out about Han Solo and that story in general that just sort of leak out throughout the movie that I think that you take for granted if you're not really paying attention. Now, I, I did love I did I did love Kira, the Kira character as well. I wish we could have seen that that scene where she goes in for that negotiation and she takes that that dude down. I don't know what exactly happened there, but I kind of wish that we got to see that one scene. It was like the one fight scene of hers that we didn't get to see, and I don't understand why we didn't get to see it. I don't know why how it was that complicated. There were certainly other cool stunts that we got to see from her, but. I mean, I know Amelia Clark is capable of it too. So, I, I wish we could have seen a little bit more of that. And I, and I like the fact that we get the double and triple crosses towards the end of the movie as well, and we get to find out that maybe Kira really was out for herself after all. And again, how does Han become the cynical guy that he is when we see him at the beginning of A New Hope? This is how. This is exactly how. It's stuff like this that's building up. And then, of course, you talk about his relationship with Beckett, who kind of took him in and was a little bit of a mentor when he escaped, and he got added to his crew to go ahead and try and steal the hyperfuel the first time. And he kind of becomes that father figure for Han, who really didn't know anything about his family or, or didn't want to talk about it one or the other. And then he stabs him in the back with Drayden Voss a little bit later on in the movie. So, again, how did Han become the Han that we know. That's exactly how we found that out. Now, to be honest, I mean, yeah, Woody Harrelson's character, Beckett, was a complete SOB, and and that's just kind of the role that Woody Harrelson plays in a lot of his movies. This kind of laissez-faire guy that turns out to be an SOB, you kind of start liking him, only to have him stab you in the back a little bit later on in whatever movie he's in. That's kind of a, like a Woody Harrelson special, which I don't mind because when you play that role well, that's the kind of guy that you want. So yeah, I I got sucked in with Beckett, only to get punched in the gut a little bit later on in the movie. And I actually thought that that was the best double cross of the entire movie because you you kind of again it, it was almost like the movie's talking to you. It's like yeah, it, I kept telling trying to tell you don't trust anybody, and yet here we are, and you trusted me, and you shouldn't have. Here's the one problem. Maybe the biggest problem that I have with this entire movie, and it was Paul Bettany's character of Drayden Voss. And I'm not talking about his portrayal, which I thought he did a very good job, and I thought he played the exact role that he was supposed to play. My problem here is I never really felt like he was a threat or understood why everyone feared him so much. I get that we're kind of told that we're supposed to fear him and we're given all these reasons, right? Yeah, he even kills a couple of dudes. Yeah, he's got this weird double glowing knife thing that seems pretty freaky. But but you don't really give me a reason why I'm supposed to be so afraid of this dude or why 
the the characters that we're following in this crew is supposed to be so afraid of him. And then, of course, you're given this whole, well, he's got somebody even more important that he answers to, and he's even scarier than that. But you don't tell me why. You don't give me a reason, at least until the end anyway, and then I guess it becomes understandable. But isn't it kind of too little too late at that point? Because, like, why are you going through all of this for this dude when it seems like you could probably take him out. Yeah, he's got guards and all that stuff, but you know, that didn't seem to be a problem throughout the rest of the movie. And then you've got the space pirates, which of course were led by Envis Nest. And I want to get to Envis Nest here in just a second. But so you dealt with that. Why couldn't you deal with Drayden Voss? It just doesn't seem like, and and then there's the whole Crimson Dawn thing. So that was the one thing I never really felt that got established is why is Drayden Voss so evil and why is he so feared by it seems like everyone Kira included so I I just wish that that would have been explained a little bit more now talking about Enfys Nest I love the fact that she was probably the most interesting and underutilized character in this entire movie because she and her crew are billed as space pirates and thieves in the beginning of this movie right And then you kind of see them as rebels or maybe the start of a rebellion and going against Crimson Dawn and eventually the Empire because the Crimson Dawn gets linked to the Empire and the the Imperial forces and taking down the little guy sort of thing. And that you kind of, it's mirrored in the whole history of Han Solo's character, don't you think? Because he seems like he's kind of a guy that's only out for himself and a thief, and all he really wants is to be a smuggler and make money and get the heck out of there, right? But then he ends up becoming a rebel and a good guy. And that was the other theme of this movie is that, Han Solo, you really are a good dude, and here's why. And at the end of the day, he does the right thing by handing over the hyperfuel to Envis Nest to kind of, I'm going to give the, I'm going to do the pun here. I'm just going to do it. It fuels the rebellion, or at least that's the impression that we're given. So, I mean, the, Again, we're finding out why did Han become the man that he is when we first see him. Now, another problem I have with this is the movie really, really acts like it wants to explore the criminal underworld of the whole Star Wars universe, right? But I feel like it never really does that. I mean, there's talk of crime bosses, and sure, there's some organized crime, and there's some stuff being stolen and smuggled and all this stuff. I get it, okay? But we never, never really dive into that like we could. That's one of the things that I was kind of hoping we'd see in these Star Wars live-action TV series from Jon Favreau that's going to be coming, is give me that, but give me more. And I'm really hoping that that's something that's still on the table, because that is one thing I left wanting from this movie, was give me more of that criminal underworld. If you want to explore Drayden Voss, that's fine. If you want to explore... Even if you want to go with Enfys Nest and her brand of space pirates too, I'd be cool with that because I think that you talk about the Boba Fett spinoff movie that was announced. How about we get more of of these of this crew? Because I feel like there's a really good story that needs to be told there as well. And I also I don't want to I don't want to forget about this. I love the origin story between Han and Chewie, and you know the whole when he says Chewbacca, I'm not going to call you that every time. We got to come up with a nickname. I got a good laugh out of that. I thought it was a really cool and touching way that they kind of got together. And it shows you the bond that they had. And then you see kind of Chewie go off to save his fellow Wookiees that were being that were being mistreated 
in this place where they were stealing the hyperfuel. And, and, but then he still comes back for Han because they've developed that bond because Han saved him in the first place. And Chewie was supposed to eat Han, which I thought was really, really funny at first. I think, you know, at first he's supposed to kill him and then they become the best of friends and, and, and coworkers and co-pilots and, you know, just a relationship that is probably one of the best, if not the best in the entire star Wars genre period. I, I, I really do feel that way. And I kind of, and again, I could have done a little bit more of that as well, even though I feel like we've got a pretty good amount. But I mean, to kind of sum up, yeah, the Kessel Run was cool. I thought that was interesting. The heist of the hyperfuel is fun, but it's just the whole movie just never really grabs you. It was it was a fun and enjoyable thing for me to watch. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't love it either. It was just kind of there. And, and is this something I would watch again? Probably, and maybe I would judge it again on how I feel about it the second time. But the question I asked when I was done watching this, especially for me personally, is if we didn't have a history with these characters from other movies, you know, like Han Solo and Chewbacca and Lando Calrissian, all of these other characters, where would we really rate this movie as fans? I know a lot of fans didn't really like the movie to begin with, and I, I guess I understand why you didn't like it, because there were some problems with it. But at the same time... If these were all new characters, kind of like we got almost all new characters in uh, in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, right? So you get almost all new characters there, but you, you laid a good foundation, and it worked so well, and that movie was excellent. And then you've got this one where it's just kind of, it's kind of ho-hum. You're not really sure how you're supposed to feel about it. and But then you say, okay, if I didn't know Han Solo, and this was the introduction that I was getting, how would I feel? I think about Han Solo and a couple of the other characters you'd feel... Maybe you'd feel fine, but overall, I'm not sure that if like if this was the movie that was kicking off your Star Wars experience, are you going to then want to kind of immerse yourself in the culture of Star Wars if this is your launching pad? I mean, you could, you could make that argument for the prequels as well, I'm sure, and, and how that goes. But, you know, I just don't feel like this one is the one that wants to further your interest. I did love the fact that speaking of the prequels, that Darth Maul gets revealed at the end as the guy that Drayden Voss was kind of answering to, and then Kira decides, yeah, she's going to go off on her own. Y- you know why she's afraid of Darth Maul, because we have that history, and we know that he was not only the best part about those prequels, but, I mean, a character I think we've wanted to see more of in live action. So I get why there's fear there, and maybe that's something we will get to see explored at some point. I wouldn't mind that at all. But as far as where this is going to go, I'm not sure that we're going to get more than a one shot out of this. I, I think it was okay. I don't think it was great. But I mean, it, it, it's it's something I wouldn't shy away from. If, if, if somebody wanted to watch it again, I didn't get to watch this with my wife. If my wife wanted to watch this, I would absolutely watch it with her. And maybe I have a fresh perspective from seeing it a second time. But as it stands right now, this movie was really just kind of okay for me. There were some good parts. There were some parts that I didn't understand or didn't like. So I'm going to have to go ahead and give this six cards up my sleeve out of ten. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Solo, a Star Wars story. Up next, plenty of nerd news and leaked trailers and all of this other stuff to get to. And we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Magdalene Masaggio, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Seems like E3's come a little bit early, and it's time for nerd news. And there's leaks all over the place 
when it comes to E3. So I think that's why Bethesda decided to just go, you know what? We're just going to give you the teaser and see how you react and then wait for the full review reveal on June the 10th. So we're talking about Fallout 76, which is a teaser for a new Fallout game from Bethesda. Now, it looks like it's going to be... Actually, we don't know what it's going to look like. The, the, the trailer is very, very much... It's very much a tease. There's not really a whole lot given away, but it you know it looks like Fallout and it feels like Fallout. But what will make it different for fans who are still enjoying Fallout Four? And there are plenty that are now. Now let's go into this a little bit. I mean, you go to the Fallout Wiki, you hear Vault Seventy Six. So the first thing that you're gonna do is go to the Fallout Wiki, right, and check that out. So in there, you find out the the nuts and bolts of it is is the Vault Seventy Six is a control vault with about 500 occupants. Now, here's the question that I've seen asked on other outlets as well, so I will ask it here to you. Will this be set entirely in one vault, and is that something that you would really, really want? Because I think fans would actually be pretty darn excited if it was all set in Vault 76. And then you see 2076 on there in the time as well. So, I mean, could we work in a tricentennial, America tricentennial thing here? A little bit. I think that that would be really, really cool. It seems like the big rumors are that this is going to be an online game. There's going to be a battle royale type of gameplay. And here's the thing that not just video games are guilty of. TV, movies. I mean, think. I think Hollywood and entertainment is guilty of this in general. When you got something like this that's been working so well, then we start to beat it to death until nobody wants it anymore. And I feel like burnout happens faster in the video game world than in anywhere. So you, so you get this in, in games like Fortnite and Call of Duty is going to be bringing this in. You've got Overwatch and you've got PUBG and it's like, okay, so how many times are we going to do this in how many different settings before gamers go, you know what, this sucks, I don't want this anymore. So I'm actually kind of hoping that it's not... Just an online battle royale shooter type thing. I hope that there's a little bit more to it than that. I, I feel like I've, I hope that it has that. Even though I, I say open world, but I, at the same time I say that I hope it's set in one vault because like that that would be neat. How big is this vault though? Like think about it. In, in Batman Arkham Asylum, yeah, you were stuck in the asylum, but you didn't feel like you were kind of confined. Arkham Asylum is pretty huge, and if this vault can have up to 500 occupants, it's not going to be. A small vault so there would be plenty to explore there and I think that there's a story to explore there as well so that's kind of my hope is that we kind of find out in the reveal from the Bethesda E3 conference which is on June the 10th that that's what we're going to get we are going to get this set in one vault and there is definitely a story that needs to be followed there so I'm really hoping that this just isn't another shooter because I think that that wouldn't do justice to Fallout. I, I hope that it forwards the story a little bit. It's not necessarily a Fallout New Vegas type of deal. And I think everyone involved isn't going to make it like that. I, I just hope that this is something that Fallout fans really, really want. And I mean, keep blasting on Twitter and, and, and letting them know what you want. Maybe we're at the too late stage, but maybe we're not. So keep letting your opinions be heard. And then we'll see what happens from there. Another big story that happened this week was another major cast member is going to be leaving The Walking Dead. This time, it's Andrew Lincoln. Now, this isn't exactly 100% confirmed yet by Collider, and the, first, the story first came out on Collider. But we do know that Rick is supposed to be in a limited number of episodes this season, and that comes on the heels of us finding out that Lauren Cohen's character was already announced 
to have a limited role in this upcoming season as well after they brought her back. Now, the question I'm asking is, I know Walking Dead fans have been frustrated. You still, lo- Some of you still love the show. Some of you are super frustrated. Some of you are, 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 you are done and you've been out anyway. Here's my question. Is this a necessary shift in focus for the show? I think it might be. You need to freshen this up a little bit. If you really are going to keep The Walking Dead going past season nine, and it seems like that is the intention here, and I say fans are frustrated, but the ratings really haven't suffered that much, right? So think about it this way. If you really, really want this to keep going, you've got to do something a little bit different and shake things up. Now, I know that you had the whole crossover with Fear the Walking Dead finally, and you got Morgan over there now, and, and people are seem to be happy about that anyway. There's actually rumors, and I don't really like addressing too many rumors, but that Rick's going to be ending up on Fear the Walking Dead as well. I mean, do you just kind of want Rick to go at this point? I think that's a sentiment that we're getting from fans, is that they just want Rick gone, and you want more of the focus on Daryl, right? Now, it seems like Norman Reedus is in negotiations again. Another rumor for a huge contract extension that would keep him on the show and maybe make him the main focus. I think that's really at the core what what Walking Dead fans want. You want more Daryl. You want him to be the focus of the show. And maybe you will finally get what you want. But how long will that make you happy is the question. And when do you see this show saying, okay, I've gotten enough. We can go ahead and end this now. I know the comics are still going, so there's definitely stories still left to tell. But on the TV side, how much more of this do you want to absorb? And how much more of this before you go, you know what, it's been pushed too far. Because the last thing you want to see is a show push it too far just for the sake of pushing it too far. And then it gets stale. And fans kind of, you, you don't want to see it fade. You know, like in sports, when you see a player at the end of their career... And you know that they want to keep playing or they're fighting for that one last championship. But you see that last year of their career and they're just not the same player that you remember. It's a little sad, right? So I, I know the Walking Dead fans don't want it to get to that point. And hopefully it doesn't. I'm not sure how many more seasons this could last. But as long as the ratings are good, you know AMC is not really going to let go of it. Here's a story that I, I had to talk about just because I got to vent just a little bit. And that is the Jamie Foxx casting as Spawn in the upcoming Spawn movie. Now, this was first reported by Deadline. And you know, by listening to the show, and probably if you want to go back a few weeks to my review of the Robin Hood trailer for the Robin Hood reboot, I am just not a Jamie Foxx fan. I'm just not. I, I mean, was he good in Django? Sure. Was he good in Collateral? Absolutely. But he's had plenty of misses as well. Need I remind you of The Amazing Spider-Man 2? Was that all his fault? I'm not saying it was, but I'm just saying that there are movies, plenty of them, that Jamie Foxx has been in, where you go, ah, just I just didn't care for that. Me, personally, maybe you love Jamie Foxx, and that's fine. And I'm not even saying he won't do a great job. I'm just saying, is he the right dude for this? Now, Todd McFarlane says, to an interview with Deadline, that he wrote the script with Jamie Foxx in mind, as Spawn. Okay, so if McFarlane is cool with it, I guess I have to definitely at least give it a chance. I know that there are plenty of Spawn fans that are cool with this as well, but I mean, the story from Deadline goes on to say that they're expected to have a 10 to $12 million budget here. It's going to be a hard R. Spawn's not really going to talk much. And to that I say, all right, if he's not really going to talk much, and that's not the focus, why are you grabbing 
a guy like Jamie Foxx. Why are you grabbing for a name if you don't if you don't really want him to say much or do a whole lot? Now, McFarlane tries to explain. I'm not going to read the entire interview to you because it, it just doesn't seem necessary. But but McFarlane goes on to say, you know, there's certain elements I'm going to need here, and you want a guy like Jamie Foxx to be able to deliver that. But there are a ton of really talented actors that I think could have ended up doing the exact same thing. I mean, D.B. Woodside from Lucifer, I think, would have been a really good choice. I think he could play both angles really, really well. Then you've also got Sterling K. Brown, who has a lot of range. I think they, they could pull that off, who I think has been looking for a role a little bit just like this to do something a little bit different from him. And, and again, I'm not putting words in Sterling K. Brown's mouth here or anything. I'm just saying that, that that's another way you could have gone. There was a couple, there's a couple of other actors that I think would have been really good as well. So I understand that you want a name because it's Spawn and not everybody knows Spawn, especially if you weren't a child of the 90s. You don't really know a whole lot about Spawn. Well, And if you don't, basically the gist of it is is that he was betrayed on Earth and then betrayed again on Hell. He was condemned to spend a life as, as cursed as Spawn because he made that choice to be with his wife and his wife has moved on and that, that becomes a whole, a whole deal. So that's kind of the, the very, very base, basics of Spawn as a story. Now, I'm sure that, you know, we're going to get a lot more into it than that. This isn't going to be an origin story either, McFarlane said. So we're going to kind of jump right in. But again, if you're not going to have, if you're not going to need Jamie Foxx to bring a certain charisma or a certain level to the role with his dialogue, then why on earth do you need to reach for a name here, especially on a budget that isn't really that high? And that, you know, that kind of begs the question of, what kind of salary demands then did Jamie Foxx have? Because you talk about movies like Django and Ray and Collateral that you know he kind of made his name on as more of a serious actor. So now you say, okay, so he's got to demand a little bit of a hefty price tag, doesn't he? Or maybe he just really wanted to do this and get and he's giving the 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 fanboy discount to Todd McFarlane here. I don't know. So I'm just really hoping that you don't reach for a name to have a name. And then a lot of your budget goes to that, and then other things suffer because of it. I really, really hope that this story gets to be told the proper way. And again, I'm not saying that Jamie Foxx is going to do a bad job. All I'm saying is I'm leery of this because I've seen his misses. And this is a movie that you cannot afford to miss on. I know they want to try and build a franchise here. But again, I think you've got to start with one movie, then decide whether or not you're going to get a franchise, don't you? Because how many times has that mistake been made? Take the Dark Universe as a perfect example. The Mummy was a huge setup for a franchise. And that bombed hard. So now here you are left holding the bag, not just... For fans, but for your story as well, you had all these plans, and now they're going nowhere because you bet hard on your first movie and lost. So if you do that with Spawn, if you're not think, if you're thinking past one movie already, maybe you have to have confidence in yourself and think past one movie. I understand that line of thinking, but at the same time, I think you've got to think one movie here because you're not talking about Batman or Spider-Man or something like that, okay? You are talking about Spawn. And I know Spawn has his niche fans and there are people that will that love Spawn and just just will embrace anything that they see that they see with that character in it. I'm just saying that again, this is another one of those times we've got to take the general movie going public into account and if they are not locked in on this in the first movie, they're out and there are no more and who knows how this first movie will end, and that could make things a lot worse. Quickly, before we move on, I want to talk about the fact that Resident Alien from Dark Horse Comics 
just got a pilot order from Sci-Fi. Now, the comic, of course, you know, is done by former guest on the show, Peter David and Stephen Parkhouse. And this kind of follows an alien that crash-landed named Harry, who sort of takes up the identity of a small-town doctor in Colorado. And all the while, he's throughout the first, you know, parts of the story, struggling with his mission to find out if human beings are really worth saving. That description from Dark Horse. Now, I've read this book, and while it didn't completely hook me, while I was reading this story, the, at least the first few issues, I remember thinking to myself, man, this, this just has TV series written all over it. It's almost like it's almost like the opposite happened, where it was a TV series first, and then you wrote the comic to adapt to it. It just felt, from the beginning, like this was going to be a TV series, and now it looks like sci-fi is going to give it a shot. And I'll be honest, if you've read Resident Alien... It just works as a series, doesn't it? It, it kind of brings that relatable sense to a stranded alien sort of thing. And you kind of get the idea that, you know, there could be a lot of realism that is brought into this and, and at the same time giving you a lot of relatable characters. And this is just the sort of thing that sci-fi does well or could do well, isn't it? And maybe this makes this makes sense why they got rid of The Expanse now, right? Because they wanted to do a little bit different of a story. Now, this doesn't take place in space, but at the same time, there's certainly similar themes here, as, or a similar audience at least. So maybe they decide, let's give this a shot, do something different, and let The Expanse go. And of course, that ended up working out for Expanse fans because now it's going to go on sci-fi. So if you've read the comic, you probably completely understand why this is going to be going to series. And if you haven't yet, I mean, give the comic a shot. And, and I'll tell you, it's definitely worth a read. Peter Hogan's very talented. And this is a story I think is going to work really well on the small screen and long form. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to jump into the Jumper franchise with YouTube Red Series Impulse. Going to talk to Sarah Desjardins about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Mary Mauser from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. In case you haven't heard, there's a very cool new show called Impulse coming to YouTube Red on June the 6th. We just have to happen to have one of the stars of that show. It's Sarah Desjardins. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm so proud of myself for, for saying your name right. That's what I am. I'll tell you. You did. You actually did. And it's, it's a rare occurrence. So thank you. I oh, appreciate it's even, it. It's even rarer for me. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Sarah, the hype for the series is kind of really starting to ramp up now that we're getting closer, and all of the trailers have, I mean, received millions of views, so what has the anticipation been like for Impulse to finally come out? Oh my gosh, that's so true what you're saying. It's it's insane. It's honestly made me so happy to see, and I honestly had the most amazing time working on the show. Everyone is so lovely, and we just know we've made something really good, and so we're all dying to share it with everybody. But honestly, just to see the response, and it's been so positive, and so many people are checking out the trailer and interested to see it. We can't wait. June 6th, let's do it. Now, we know that the show is based on the third novel in the Jumper series by Stephen Gould. Other than the fact that they're kind of both set in smaller towns, would you say there are any other similarities between the two? Uh, truth be told, it's very loosely set. Really, I think a more accurate depiction of this would be that it's in the Jumper universe. Henry is, because the third book is based on uh, Millic uh, Millicent, I believe. Henry is our main character here, and really, you're just going to have to wait and see how it all ties into everything. <laughs> I, I like don't want to give too much away. I like that. That's a nice little tease. That's a good way to get things started. All right, here we go. Now, <laughs> on that note, 
You play Jenna Hope, who, of course, is the main character, Henry's stepsister. Now, it seems like in the trailer that there's some friction there, but then at other times, there seems they seem to kind of be hanging out together. So how would you describe their relationship? So I feel like something I can safely say, because it's in the trailer, is that as we see what happens in the trailer is Henry is assaulted. And so at the beginning of the show, Jenna and Henry's relationship has a lot more friction to it because Henry and her mom, Cleo, have moved in with my dad, Thomas, and I, and I'm just very skeptical. I really want my dad to be happy. That's very important to Jenna. And I just, she's kind of infringing on my life. And that's not something that I want. But when, but when this assault happens is kind of when Jenna puts her feelings aside and shows her true colors and she's going to take care of Henry. She's going to be there for her. Henry needs someone and Jenna is going to be that person. They have a, it's almost like the will they, won't they relationship of the show. (laughs) where they're getting along, they're not getting along, they're getting along, they're not getting along, they're hanging out together, they're not hanging out together. <laughs> oh, kind of like sisters then, is, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I guess like sisters. I have a brother, so I can't fully relate, but I guess like sisters, that's a good point. <laughs> now, on a little, little bit of a heavier note, you talk about the fact that we see her get assaulted in the trailer. Do, do you feel like this show kind of deals with the aftermath of what might, you know, what might occur after some kind of an assault like that? How do you think this show kind of deals with that issue if it does? Honestly, that is something about our show that I'm the most proud of. What happened was we shot the pilot and it was always intended to be in the pilot, but it was shot slightly differently. And then when we got picked up to go to series, our amazing showrunner, Lauren LaFranc, who I can't say enough wonderful things about, kind of picked that out specifically in the pilot and realized that it was something that needed to be reworked to be depicted more accurately. So we actually ended up reshooting that scene and a couple of the scenes that follow to more accurately depict how it would truly happen. And it shaped a lot of the season. And you're going to find out how Henry has to deal with the aftermath of that throughout the whole season. It, It affects her deeply. That can't be an easy thing to have to reshoot either, you know? No, like Maddie, Maddie Hassan, who plays Henry, who is ridiculously talented. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a fun thing to go through, but she as well saw the, the value in what we were doing. And of course, she was game. Now, one of the things that I love about this series so far from what I've seen is the town of Reston itself kind of seems to be a very important part of the show. Now, when you were shooting, did it almost feel like the town itself was kind of an, its own character in its own way? Yes, I, I think you could say that. Honestly, all of us, it's such a large ensemble cast, almost, you could say. There's so many of us, and we're all like heavily laced through everything that's going on in the town. But there's also so much going on that you're not involved in every aspect of shooting the show. So I would say that the town felt like its own character in the sense that there was always so much going on that I had no idea about. <laughs> And that's the good thing because the whole the whole hook of the series so far has been nothing is as it seems, right? So that kind of plays into that. Nope. And like as each episode goes along, though, that's how we felt as well. Like what would happen in the next episode when we go to the table read is something we never would have expected. But I think that's something that hopefully the audience will love. Have some twists that aren't to be expected. That's excellent. We're talking to Sarah Desjardins, who, of course, plays Jenna Hope in Impulse on YouTube Reg, which is going to be coming out on June the 6th. Now, Sarah, we find out that someone has ability. When you find out someone has abilities, especially when it's in the family, 
you would definitely be kind of hard to come to that realization. So it seems like Jenna knows based on what we've seen in the trailer anyway, or at least Henry's trying to confide in her just based on what we've seen. So were you kind of asking yourself how you would react being in a similar situation or were you purely in the mindset of the character? I mean, I feel that there's a part of yourself in every character you play. So I always ask that question to begin with. I'm like, how would Sarah react to this situation? But also you have to think about the attributes of your character that may not actually be your own and how like those shifts in personality could even affect their reaction. But in this case, I mean, I, again, I don't want to give too much away. Obviously, we can see in the trailer that Jenna does know about it, but I don't really want to give away how she finds out. But let's just say it's a shock, <laughs> as I feel it would probably be to anyone who didn't necessarily believe in powers. <laughs> That's not exactly a normal thing in everyday life. So so I get it. Yeah, I not, think that that's, that's kind of how I'd feel about it, too. Yeah, there's a lot of shock and confusion um, at the beginning, I'll say. Like, we, you don't, in, like, in the real world, I know we're surrounded by superhero shows and all this Marvel and DC stuff, but in the real world, if something happens in this realm, our automatic assumption isn't going to be she has powers. I got so, you. I just, got you. So let's just say that. I hmm. see where you're going with that. Now, I feel like I'd kind of be doing our listeners a disservice if I didn't ask you this. So if you could teleport and you had full control of your powers, where oh would you go gosh. first? Okay. Oh, God. I feel like I need to say an amazing answer. But, oh, my gosh, so much pressure. Okay. Let's think about this. Let's think about this. Um, oh, okay. Somewhat, somewhat of a boring answer, but it's, it's my, where my true heart lies. I would love the ability to just teleport to New York whenever I wanted to, because that, that would be cool. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm an actor at heart, so I just would love the chance to like, Oh, I can just pop in, see a Broadway show, pop back home. Plus you're in Vancouver and connecting flights and all that stuff. It would just make oh, it so much easier. Pain. Let's just skip, let's just skip the whole thing. Yeah, I, th I think that's, over a, there. that's a good plan. Plus, you never know who's going to be sitting next to <laughs> you on the plane. It's a whole deal. There might be some babies. Like, let's just avoid this whole hassle. Oh, yeah. Like that, that sounds like a plan to me. Now, I've got to ask you about something that, taking a little bit of a break from the show here, I've got to ask you about something that you tweeted early on in April that I thought was really interesting and something that we've touched on on the show before. Now, it seems like okay. you were kind of venting some frustrations about a lot of oh the my gosh. and the remakes that seem to be popping up lately. Oh, yes. So if that was the case, then what frustrates you the most about that? And do you feel like original ideas are really given an equal opportunity to find their way onto the screen in the first place? All right. So, yes, I, I wasn't sure what tweet you were going to be talking about, but this one, yeah. So I do, I do find it really frustrating because I just think there are so many original ideas out there. I have such a hard time believing that we're resorting to all these reboots because there's nothing else. There has to be. And I do understand, I, I feel like they're not given an equal opportunity because the other aspect of doing all these reboots is those shows that have been successful, have a built-in fan base, and studios feel they can make money off of it which I totally understand. And I know that it gives a lot of people opportunities. And I definitely believe that there are some reboots that are done well. And I, I want to plug a little bit. I think I heard you, did I hear you talking about it? There was um, my, my beautiful friend, Sarah Jeffrey. She plays one of the sisters in the new Charmed reboot. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I saw the trailer for that the other day. And 
I was skeptical that they were remaking Charmed, but I think it's it's a different take on Charmed. It's not exactly the same, and I feel like it could do really well, and I'm really excited for her. But yeah, I think I just don't think that original scripts are given the same opportunity now. That's my opinion. Do you also kind of feel like for fans of whatever that original thing is, you're kind of opening yourself up to even more criticism than maybe an original idea. Would you say that's kind of fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a good example for me would be one of my favorite shows of all time, Gilmore Girls. And when I found out that they were making a year in the life, I was beyond excited. But then I, I watched it and it, the right, I don't, it just nothing, nothing was as strong. It wasn't as there. It felt more forced and it. It definitely opens yourself up to more criticism because sometimes like, you have to end a good thing on the note that it ended on, and mm. some, some things aren't meant to be continued. I, I totally agree with that. But now back to the show for one second before I let you go. One of the things that seems to come yeah. up a lot when it comes to impulse is that line, like I said earlier, not everything is as it seems. So since we've been doing a nice little tap dance today, without spoiling <laughs> anything, would you say that that is true of your character as well? 100%. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, 100%. I I had to get the long pause in there because the long pause adds dramatic (laughs) effect and makes people want to watch Impulse Season 1 beginning on June the 6th on YouTube Red. And we know, but we don't know, that she's going to be a big part of it. Sarah Desjardins, who plays Jenna, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me. The show seems like it has a really cool vibe, doesn't it? If you've seen the trailer, you already know what to expect a little bit. But again, there's just so much mystery there. And I was just so intrigued when I saw Impulse. And it's so nice to talk to Sarah Desjardins and get inside of that a little bit and find out that, yeah, there really is a ton of mystery there. And this will be a little bit different from the Jumper franchise that we have come to know. And I think that that's definitely a good thing. I can't wait to watch more of Impulse on YouTube Red, which is going to be coming out this coming Wednesday. You can binge all of the episodes. And, and I think it looks really intense and cool, and that's why I want to talk about it and do something a little bit different this week. That's going to do it for the Down and Nerdy podcast this week. Thanks to De- again to Sarah Desjardins for joining me and talking about Impulse on YouTube Red. If you want to find out more interviews that we've done, just go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. There's a ton of them up there in past episodes. Also follow along on social media as well. Facebook.com slash down and nerdy and at down and nerdy seven five seven on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember one thing, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.